Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. For this episode, I'm joined by a returning guest, author Travis Watson, to discuss his latest book, Mysteries in the Mist, Mist, Fog and Clouds in the Paranormal. This is a follow-up work to his book on phantom black dogs and explores the evidence of an association between a host of different paranormal phenomena and their appearance amidst or being presaged by unusually localised mist, which in some cases seems to be an intentional act. In the interview, we discuss this in more detail, exploring a number of examples included in the book, from dogmen to Sasquatch, gin, shadow people, and much more. It was a fun, wide-ranging chat. One thing I should note for you, there was a slight issue with Travis's sound, and at times in the interview, you can hear a sort of static crackling. Uh, I tried to fix this in the edit, but I wasn't able to. It's not that noticeable though, and doesn't really detract from the listening experience. Anyway, here's our conversation. Enjoy. Travis, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me back. I I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about mysteries in the mist. The research for this book was just kind of (laughs) mind-blowing. Yeah, it it sounds it. I, I was reading at the introduction... You you mentioned how some of it came from when you were researching your previous book about phantom black dogs. That's correct. I um, well, one of several um, sources or, or origin stories for this particular book uh, happens. Uh, there actually are in the phantom black dog uh, walkers of the liminal way book. Um, couple of three stories that have fog involved, but my favorite was the uh, the gentleman who uh, was a uh, one of the founding editors of the um, the Oxford Oxford English Dictionary, and he took his family on holiday in the in the mountains of of the UK, and um, they were out uh, taking a hike, and as luck would have it, uh, they got socked in. Um, very heavy fog came in. Um, and reduced visibility to almost nothing. And as a former search and rescue person, um, I worked on a, 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 a volunteered with a, a, a SAR dog team for a while. You know, my advice to people and, and the advice of search professionals is if you get in a situation like that, particularly if you're in the mountains, sit down and wait for the fog to clear. Mm-hmm. Um, this gentleman didn't do that. Uh, he decided that he was gonna, gonna, uh, carry on. And, um, he, uh, was, was blundering his way around in the mountains up there and, uh, a phantom black dog appeared to him, uh, not the, the glowing eyed type, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the dog that appears to be a dog until you realize it's not a dog, <laughs> um, he, this dog blocked his way. Um, he tried to go around the dog and the dog refused to yield to him. Um, they were at loggerheads for some time uh, before the fog finally started to dissipate. Uh, then the dog, the dog dissipated with the fog 
And the gentleman realized that had he gone forward in the place where the dog was blocking him, he would have walked off a cliff. Um, so <laughs> there's a, a great example of the uh, phantom black dog as a guardian spirit rather than a harbinger of death. Um, that was one of the stories that, that got me going on on the research for this. Uh, another one that I mentioned in the, uh, in the introduction is actually a personal tale. Um, and then I also had some um, interesting uh, uh, stories that uh, I ran across in Linda Godfrey's work that had to do with strange mists and fogs appearing in trail cameras um, uh, at the site of a um, uh, supposed of a, a possible dog man. It wasn't not, I wouldn't say supposed. I'd say possible dog man or or man wolf encounter or. Uh, individual who's a farmer had been having roadkill and so forth disappear from his property and found large uh, bipedal canid tracks. So um, all of those things got me to thinking, well, I wonder if, uh, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about this. I wonder if there is a component of, uh, you know, we see oftentimes in paranormal uh, incursions of various sorts, this idea of you know, things becoming very silent, uh, sometimes people having um, uh, distorted time effects or having a feeling that something is about to happen. Jenny Randall's called it the Oz effect. I wondered if these uh, smokes, mists, fogs might not also be uh, a, a sign of uh, anomalous events happening, much like uh, some some people have associated anomalous light phenomena with these kinds of things. So that's what got me started on the research for this. Going back to dogmen and manwolves, which you cover at the beginning of the book, they're quite—they're not even quite unusual creatures. They're some of the most unusual creatures that people can encounter. So do you think that there's a, a relationship between mists and unusual fogs and 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 these more fantastical entities well i am i'm of two minds um with the uh you know the sasquatch sightings and the and the, the man wolf sightings that involve fog it seems to me uh that there are there's more of a um a, a place where these beings whatever they are um, are using the fog or the mist as a, uh, a visual obscuration to hide themselves from view. And they are only seen because somebody just happens to be there at the time. Um, as you go later into the book, it becomes evident, though, that these fogs, mists, and clouds sometimes have effects of their own without being associated with the creature at all. Um, the other thing that I that I bring up in the book is that, um, you know, there is the possibility uh, that these um, fogs, mists, clouds, however you want to call it, just call them mists, um, that these mists actually maybe hide what uh, some paranormalists like to call portals or window areas, um, or um, that some being of the other world is using the mist to actually formulate a, uh, a body of sorts for itself. Um, I, I, noted, I note in the, in the book that um, there are 
are um, ceremonial magicians, for example, that use um, uh, that use a certain type of incense in order to bring a spirit to what they call visual man or physical manifestation, which usually you, you can see it. Um, so why not a circumstance where being uh, that's coming over, uh, you know, transdimensional or however you want to put that, uh, is using the fog to sort of make itself visible. Um, I think any or all of these things are possibilities. Um, you know, uh, when you start to get into this field, there's just no, <laughs> there's no right answer. Um, we have theories, but we don't know. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. I mean, from reading your book, it, it does seem as though there's a, a mixture of cases where there are things in the mist, in, in the fog, and but mm -hmm. also entities which are mist or or like you were just saying can create it for some reason yeah or that the mist itself is the being or entity or or just strange anomalous thing uh there's a whole section at the end of the book about i call them mysterious mists um because we see some really wild effects um as you as you go on there yeah i mean i i guess from a very basic level um Everyone, I imagine most people who have listened to this episode have have experienced mist and fog. And it, when it's thick, it it does sort of affect your 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 senses, doesn't it? It limit it limits your vision at least. I mean, do you think that that could be part of it for some reason? Because your field of vision is limited, it it means that like your other senses are doing more work or you're, you're, you're more likely to be in some sort of slightly altered state perhaps. Well, exactly. Um, you know, the other possibility that I didn't bring up is that some of these events that happen to people are spontaneous psychic, uh, uh, episodes. Um, cause when we look at the research on Psy, what do we find? We find that Psy works best when an individual is relaxed you know, in a, in a fair, you know, any, any, um, movement toward, uh, uh, you know, goal, being goal oriented, you know, wanting to prove that you're psychic almost instantly makes sure that you're not going to be, um, <laughs> it's often, you know, and, and it's often, uh, associated with sort of a light trance, um, you know, in the situation with, uh, with fog, um, as you say, uh, the visual obscuration damps down the amount of sensory input that we're getting. Uh, fog also tends to dampen sound and so forth. Um, it's entirely possible that people could be uh, experiencing a sort of uh, sensory mild sensory deprivation that is enhancing uh, what whatever latent psychic ability they have, and that they're seeing things that look entirely real to them, um, but are actually psychic visions. So, uh, you know, we, again, we don't know <laughs> any or all of these could be true. Mm. The, the dogman, a couple of the dogman cases that you write about are in Wisconsin. Um, mm -hmm. is there a tradition of those sorts of beings there? I mean, I'm, I'm just intrigued by why, why a dogman there and, and why, why a dogman in general? <laughs> I just... <laughs> It's very intriguing uh, because it's very unlikely to be a natural creature, but it's such a stylized sort of being. It, it just feels like something that has purpose. Mm -hmm. This is not just out of nothing. 
Yeah, it has a very um, otherworldly tone to it. Um, it, it happened that the, a couple of the, uh, the stories that I chose for the book uh, originated out of Wisconsin because that was, uh, that was the place where Linda Godfrey did her original uh, man-wolf field work. Um, as you probably know, though, um, once Godfrey published The Beast of Bray Road, um, she was flooded <laughs> with man-wolf encounters from all over um, the United States and, and, uh, and overseas as well. Um, so some in Canada, as a matter of fact, um, there's, there was one. Uh, so the, uh, the, the Michigan was just was happenstance. They, they don't just occur there. Um, uh, Godfrey relates some. Um, the, the presence of, of these, these man-wolf type creatures to uh, things like uh, uh, what they call Indian burial mounds, which they don't really know what they are, but um, there are large numbers of those throughout the Midwestern United States. And it seems that these beings, for whatever reason, have a tendency to manifest in, uh, in areas around those, those mounds. Um, that's, uh, that's one reason why Wisconsin, Michigan, those kinds of places have, uh, have a lot of, uh, of man-wolf encounters seemingly. Uh, but mostly I think it's just that, uh, that the researcher in this particular case, uh, you know, if I were writing about man-wolves and, and, uh, you know, I was writing about my local area, I'd be writing about Canada. Um, so in this case, the researcher simply lived, lives in that area and so had more, uh, was able to accumulate more experiences from that area. That plus the, the Bray Road incident, uh, again, is in Wisconsin. And that was kind of the, uh, how would you say, the introduction to the man-wolf, because <laughs> uh, the Beast of Bray Road's been around, uh, been with us since the 90s. Um, and in my mind, really sort of kicked off the whole man-wolf thing. There had been, uh, you know, as Godfrey discovered, there there had been sightings of this being previous to the whole Bray Rude incident, but um, it didn't seem that they were so common. Uh, but once she started researching this thing, it seems to have opened some sort of otherworldly floodgate, and these things started appearing all over the place. Um, including uh, including the uk right yeah yeah um one thing that intrigued me is that you you have a section about bigfoot sort of sasquatch like entities and there's um an example from the uk the the big gray man of ben mcdewey yeah um which is a really interesting um is a really interesting case. The the other one that you're that that is in the UK was one called Monarch of the Mists in in Wales, which seems to be more of an Earth spirit. Um, uh, has that kind of vibe to it. But um, the the big gray man um, is fairly famous. Um, is a, a a being that supposedly haunts or resides in the on the mountain and in Scotland um, and. Um, in the stories that I saw that I researched, um, only one of those stories does someone actually see the creature. And again, mm -hmm. in all of these creatures and all of these encounters, um, the the witnesses are socked in. They they have a major, a major fog event uh, that uh, really obscures their vision. 
Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the one case that I'm thinking of, uh, this individual was out, um, I remember right, it was post-World War II. Um, this individual was out on the mountain, or maybe it was during World War II, was out on the mountain. And um, as with the other witnesses, um, he heard uh, what sounded like footsteps coming up on him. You know, there's the the footsteps, the the shuffling, uh, you know, this feeling of dread. Uh, so again, he had a feeling that something was going on. Now he happened to be armed uh, at the time because uh, food rationing was in effect. So you know, he figured since he was up on the mountain, he might as well see if he could bag uh, some some wild game for uh, for his dinner. Um, this uh, something looms up, and again, there's no clear description, but something looms up out of the mist at him. He opens fire on it to no effect. Uh, and then, like the other two witnesses that I, uh, that I recount in the, in the book, he flees. Uh, he bails out and uh, basically just flies down the mountainside. Uh, again, not a recommended thing to do in the fog where you can't see what you're doing. It's not a recommended thing to do on a rocky mountainside at all. Um, the interesting thing about this, and one of those little side note things that makes the, the paranormal of Fortean more interesting, is that every one of these witnesses panicked and fled from whatever it was that was approaching them on the mountain. And every single one of them made it down off the mountainside safely. Um, hmm. Now, given that you have visual obscuration, um, you know, so that the individual can't see well, they're in a panicked state where they're fleeing, they think, for their lives. Um, and, uh, you know, they're on very treacherous terrain. Um, to me, it's a minor miracle that any of them made it off the mountain safely. Uh, but all three of them did and uh, lived to tell the tale. Um, the interesting t thing, too, about that that uh, story is that, uh, unlike the uh, the other witnesses, this guy went back and was on that mountain uh, any number of times afterwards. Um, so, uh, but uh, you know, the the gray man is is very ambiguous. We don't know exactly what it is, but uh, the only descriptions that we have is that it seemed to be large and, and you know, sort of bipedally humanoid. Uh, but there's no clear description of this thing because it is almost, all of the encounters that I found for this one were in, you know, in the fog. Um, so, uh, so that you don't get a clear view of the creature. Mm. And is there anything about that mountain that makes it different to other mountains in Scotland? I'm I'm just wondering if it has a a history of being a special place. Not that I encountered. Um, the thing that seems to make it a special place is the presence of this creature. Um, you know, it's 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 like the uh, the areas uh, that you go to that are supposedly haunted or or have a strong uh, fairy presence or whatever. It's like, which came first? You know, the area became yeah. well known because of the incursion or people started going there and started running into these, uh, these beings. Um, we don't know. Uh, I don't have, uh, I didn't run across anything in my research that indicated that, you know, this was a well-known site of, uh, you know, paranormal activity or anything like that. 
Yeah, and it feels localized to that mountain. I, mm-hmm. I mean, there's the phenomenon of the extra person in the party that mountaineers and other explorers have say that they've experienced, but I think that's often in times when it's really bad weather. But this, it does it. It feels it feels like a different experience to that. It feels less like a like something that could be explained through fatigue or or some sort of psychological means. Yeah, that uh, that oh, what is it? It's called the third person phenomena, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, something like or that, the, or, or other phantom stranger or something. Yeah, like something like that. I, I don't recall right off the top of my head, but I've I've heard of it. Um, yeah, typically though, um, in those circumstances, when people have that experience, they have a situation where this uh, whatever it is that's following them along. Uh, some of them perceive it as a guardian angel. Um, but in most, in the cases that I've heard of, uh, that particular phenomena seems to be beneficial, um, and, and provide the person, uh, that's exploring or lost or whatever it is that they're doing, um, some level of comfort or, uh, some, uh, way to keep going, um, in a, in a, a, a harsh situation. Whereas the, the, the gray man seems to, to appear to people to scare them the heck off his mountain. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and judging from the fact that nobody gets hurt during these events, I, I don't think that it's necessarily a, um, you know, a, a, a harmful entity. Um, but it certainly seems to be territorial, you know, and it acts, uh, you know, in the, the, uh, manifestations that we see when people encounter the creature are very similar to what, uh, the Sasquatch researchers in the, um, uh, in the United States, uh, will take as sort of evidence for the presence of one of the Sasquatch creatures. You know, you get the footsteps, that feeling of being followed, uh, I think there were stones thrown and that kind of thing too. And all of these things are, are things that if you transplanted them into the Pacific Northwest, any Sasquatch researcher would tell you that you probably were being paced by a Bigfoot. Um, I, I don't know that I necessarily <laughs> agree with that all the time. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, but on, by the same token, uh, most of your, your Sasquatch researchers are like, well, you know, the, the UK couldn't possibly have any of these creatures in it because it's, it's too densely populated and there's not enough forest land and so on and so forth. But then you come across something like the Gray Man or, like I said, the Monarch of the Mists, where there was an actual sighting in Wales, uh, which is hysterical. This fellow was out with his dog and saw this gorilla-like creature off in the bushes and uh, it scared him so badly that he he called the police. And the, the interesting thing about that one was that the the, the local constabulary didn't bat a lash. Um, uh, the crime prevention officer, whatever he was called, uh, made a statement to the to the press that uh, you know they took these and I'll quote Yeti sightings uh, very seriously, and that they would increase police presence in that area to make sure that people were safe. Um, which makes you wonder, okay, how often are people seeing these quote unquote yetis running around in the village? Yeah. You know, um, this happened in Wales. Um, so um, I, I found that one that that very uh, very interesting. That you know they didn't even blink. Um, 
and, and the, the police officer had no uh, qualms about, you know, commenting on this and saying, okay, well, yeah, we take these things seriously. If there are, you know, bipedal apes running around in our village, we want to know about it. You know? So who knows? <laughs> Definitely. Um, it's just when I hear of experiences like that, I'm just, I'm always intrigued as to why these entities look the way they do. Like an ape man, it's are they using our subconscious to to create something? Are they are they taking some sort of cultural memory from the distant past to to form like an an avatar or something? I it's 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 always intrigued me. I I can never quite put my finger on what I think might be happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and I've said this any number of times. It's like if you don't have a high tolerance for mystery, um, then you're going to have a problem being involved with any of these things, um, paranormal, UFOs, whatever, <laughs> because it is a mystery and chances are good it's going to remain a mystery. Um, and we need to, to understand that and approach it in a, in a, a respect, respectful manner and see what we can find out. I've, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly understand where you're coming from. Uh, for instance, with, with Sasquatches or, you know, the, the gray man or the monarch of the mists or any of these kinds of things, uh, you know, the, the people who are more knowledgeable about Sasquatch history than I, um, will, um, will hark back to, you know, in the United States, you had reports of wild men, um, before the, the term, Bigfoot, which I, I just really don't like a whole lot, um, came into uh, um, common usage. Um, you know, in Europe, you have a long history of um, that idea of wild men in the forests and the wood woes and so forth. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's entirely possible that something or some creature, otherworldly or transdimensional or whatever, is is assuming that form because it's something that it sees in our minds that, or, or in our genetics, even, um, that's a part of the, uh, you know, cultural history of the United States, of Canada, the European areas and so forth. Um, you know, your man wolf is very obviously kind of uh, modeled on the idea of werewolves, um, you know, which have been, uh, a, a component of legend in both the United States, Canada, and Europe for, centuries um you know the the canadians for instance have uh uh particularly in in the french areas of canada have the lougarou um which is a, a well-known werewolf subset and there are man wolf sightings in quebec uh so you know maybe yeah some of this stuff is being pulled right out of our own heads out of our own cultural histories out of our own even genetics, um, you know, because some of these creatures could be uh, uh, could be manifesting from ideas that count, come from, for instance, on on this side of the pond from uh, from native lore. Yeah, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, you make a great point about the the nature of of mystery. It's it's almost as though that is the point. The mysteries are there to be to be mysteries. I mean, I think I would be. A part of me would be devastated if it turned if the mystery of what Bigfoot was was solved. 
or even if someone could solidly prove that ghosts were real, I'd be like, well, that's, that's taking some of the fun out of it now because there's, some of the, there's less mystery to it. So, yeah, you make a great point there. I think humans really need that mystery. You know, we need to, uh, in order to push ourselves, I think, we need to know that there are things that we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and the, I, I'm sure that this is part of the reason why a lot of people get involved in the paranormal is that they're so sick of people telling them that, uh, you know, everything in the universe is known now and, and there's not much more to learn. And, uh, you know, we know that that's not true because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know? there's there's a whole uh, I mean, you, you read my book or, or you, know, you go back into the 60s and read some of Frank Edwards books like uh, Stranger Than Science and those kinds of things. I, I love those old uh, compendiums of, um, you know, the weird, um, you know, you go even farther back to Charles Fort, who just made a, you know, made a hobby of collecting every every strange thing he could find in the newspapers. Um, you know, the, these things have been around and they're going to continue to be around. And, and, you know, the scientific materialists who want to say that, you know, there's a logical explanation for everything, you know, are, you know, they are dumbfounded if they will actually stop and look at some of these things and see that there is, uh, you know, uh, there's good anecdotal evidence for almost all of them. And let's face it, kids, if you take anecdotal evidence into a court of law, that's how they convict people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, this whole business that, you know, of, of you know, extraordinary uh, claims require extraordinary evidence is just bollocks as far as I'm concerned, because it's, it's uh, you know, it's like evidence is evidence. You know, and if you're uh, just because you don't want to believe something, doesn't mean that I have to come up with extraordinary means to prove it to you. Um, and that's basically what it boils down to. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um, later on in the book, you have a section which is all about the, the gin, which mm-hmm. is a, a subject, a set of beings I'm fascinated by, but I don't know a whole lot about. So just tell us a little bit about those, those entities and how they fit in with the book. Well, just a research note for you. Um, if you want to know more about the djinn, um, there is a book out there by Robert Lebling called Legends of the Fire Spirit. That is absolutely uh, probably the best English language uh, work on the djinn written by a, a fellow who actually lived in the Middle East for an extended period of time and had some good sources uh, on, on djinn lore. Um, so... When we talk about jinn, uh, unfortunately, there have also been uh, claims that, or theories put forward, that the jinn are responsible for all paranormal incursions. Um, I don't buy that. I, I, I'm a firmly animistic person, and I believe that there's a an ecosystem of of the spirit, just as there's an ecosystem of uh, physical biological life, um, and that that ecosystem is populated by uh, you know, a diverse uh, number and types of, of spirits that we probably haven't even uh, categorized yet. Um, we just know some of them. In my mind, the jinn are, are cousins to the to the uh, to the European fairy, or uh, however you want to call them. Um, they 
all of these beings seem to have uh, spe mostly specific areas that they uh, tend to um, to hang out in. Um, and in this case, uh, the jinn are uh, spirits of the, the Middle East and North Africa. Now, that's not to say that they can't travel. Um, one of the interesting things that I learned from a, a gentleman who was a very interested in fairies and fairy lore was that uh, the, the Scottish seers who uh, worked with fairy, uh, when they were removed from the land in Scotland and transplanted into the Appalachians in um, the United States, actually felt that they had lost their contacts for a while. And then sometime later, those contacts reestablished themselves there in, in the U.S., um, so it seems to me possible that uh, those people who have uh, associations with the jinn in uh, Middle Eastern or North African areas who move to other areas of the world may take the jinn with them. So these beings are, um, they're very handy for, uh, you know, trying to explain a lot of paranormal occurrences because they are uh, known to be, they are, were originally spirits of, of according to, I believe it's according to the Quran, spirits of smokeless fire. Um, they were created supposedly before humankind, um, according to the Quran. Um, they live in uh, family groups. Uh, they have cities, uh, supposedly, according to the jinn lore, and, and they are an accepted fact in Islam. Um, in fact, there's an entire surah in the, in the uh, Quran that, that relates to the jinn. Um, but uh, according to the jinn lore, they live in cities, they build buildings, they do all these things, but they live in a, an alternate dimension most of the time. Um, it's the case that um, if you, uh, as an Islamic person, for example, uh, follow the Quran, if you see a, a snake in your home, rather than trying to kill it instantly, um, you're supposed to ask it to leave. Um, because the snake is one of the favored forms of the of the jinn, and you don't want to to tick off those entities. They're they're they tend to be vengeful if they're uh, they feel that there's a a reason to be. Um, they also are, are uh, and this ties into our, our discussion earlier about black dogs. One of their favorite forms apparently is a, is a large black dog as well. Uh, complete with the glowing eyes. So in that part of the world, in places like Af Afghanistan, for instance, some of the, the, the reports that we hear of, of large black dogs may actually be jinn. So you have, uh, you know, you have the spirit that uh, is a shapeshifter, um, but it's specifically tied also to mist and smoke. Um, you have the uh, you know, the stories like Aladdin where, you know, somebody rubs a, a, a vessel and, and smoke pours out and, and the gin is freed, right? Um, sometimes offers you uh, wishes or whatever. Um, in one of the cases in the book, however, um, Rosemary Allen Guiley, who's a, a well-known uh, paranormal researcher who passed some time ago, uh, wrote a book about the gin. And again, you know, as I said, I don't necessarily agree with all of her uh, all of her theories in that book. But um, she was a intrepid person. She was actually in the Middle East. Um, it seems to me like she was in Jordan or or one of those countries, and heard about a place in the desert that was supposed to be uh, a place where the jinn lived. 
um, she talked a couple of local men into taking her out there, and they discovered a uh, a, a cave, uh, a cavern, underground cavern. She roped up in a harness and started to rappel into this cave uh, with these two fellows standing watch, uh, you know, at, at the top of uh, the entrance. Now, she tells a slightly different story from what they tell. Um, as she lowered herself into this, um, this cavern, um, the only light was coming from the entrance above her head. Um, as she was repelling in, she saw what she took to be a green mist forming um, beneath her. And she thought it was just a you know localized weather phenomena happening uh, as a result of there being some water in the in the cavern. However, as she lowered herself further into the cave, she had the distinct impression, and she felt it was more of a mental impression, that uh, the mist was taking on a form, and that it very much wanted her to get out of that cave. <laughs> now her cohorts at the entrance to the cave told her flat out that the mist turned into a gin and it told them to get out. <laughs> now, this difference in perception can be explained in a number of different ways, but we really, you know, again, go back to the mystery of it. We don't know. We weren't there. Um, Guiley took the, the mist's advice and got out of the cavern, and fortunately, she got out quickly enough to catch these two guys before they bailed out on her and left her out there in the middle of the desert. Um, she got, did manage to, to catch a ride back with them. They would not talk about this thing at all. Um, and uh, so she was left with more questions than answers, but definitely had a sort of a gin encounter of her own, uh, which is in the book. Yeah, I remember reading that, and that's, um, that's an incredible experience. It's very Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have done a little um, rappelling, um, and it's awful fun. I, I'm not sure that I would want to rappel into a dark cavern <laughs> without knowing what was underneath me. Uh, and particularly if I, yeah, this is, this is a public service announcement from, you know, W.T. Watson, author of <laughs> Mysteries in the Mist. If you see a fog, mist, or cloud that has a strange color to it, please avoid this fog, mist, or cloud. Because almost invariably, <laughs> you're going to have some kind of a strange paranormal incursion. Um, it, it happens all through the book uh, where you see different uh, mists and clouds and so forth that form and are odd colors and have just bizarre effects. Um, and some of which uh, produce, uh, you know, near fatal car crashes and stuff in um, uh, some of the witnesses. So, you know, please, please, please be careful around any kind of a, a you know, fog, mist, cloud that you perceive as being abnormal, um, just for your own safety's sake. That's great advice. I hardly agree there. But that, that does lead on to a question I, I had. Is, is there any correlation that you found between colours of mist and variations in the, in the phenomena that people experience relating to that? Uh, no. <laughs> 
just to be, uh, um, you know, I mean, I looked for that when I started to realize that uh, people who were seeing these colored mists particularly were having uh, incursions. I was, I was looking as I, I did the research for the book for people's colored mist experiences to kind of line up with uh with some sort of you know you know if it's green then this happens and if it's kind of a purple color then this happens and so the the only thing that i can say about that is that if the mist has a color that you would not normally associate with mist fog clouds whatever that makes it more likely that you're going to experience one of these incursions um, but it doesn't seem to be the case that a particular mist pr color produces a particular type of incursion. Right. Um, all, the only exception to that that I can think of is that green mists are known to, uh, and again, you know, if you're in, in the Middle East, apparently there's, they would be associated with gin. Um, in uh, the UK, uh, the lore that I found associated the green mist with fairy beings. So, mm. you know, again, I kind of think these guys are cousins to each other, but because there's much the same kind of, of lore about the fairy as there are about the djinn. But so the green mist seems to be associated with fairy lore. Um, however, I, there's, there's a green mist story in the book that's just a, a time displacement thing. Um, which, you know, I mean, again, you can associate with fairy in that uh, there are tons of stories of people actually, you know, being drawn into the, the, the fairy lands and then coming back and they've uh, experienced some kind of time displacement. A year has passed or, you know, a week has passed or whatever, and they thought they were only gone for a few minutes. Um, in the case I'm thinking of, uh, uh, this fellow is a police officer who actually encountered a green mist coming in over a swamp um, and lost some time uh, during that, uh, during that encounter. So, uh, you know, it could have been, maybe he got abducted by fairies, who knows? Uh, but yeah, the, the correlation there is, you know, colored mist more likely to encounter uh, paranormal phenomena of some kind or the other. But not necessarily, you know, okay, if it's a green mist, it's this. If it's purple, it's this. If it's black, it's this. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we don't know. Of course. No, I, I, I get it. Um, later on in the book, you, you have a section that concerns the beings known as shadow people. I think there's a, mm -hmm. there is a bit of a connection between that you identify in the book between shadow people and potentially the djinn. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it's, uh, I'm not going to take the credit for that. It's its actually Guiley who proposes the, uh, the the link between the shadow people and the djinn. And again, you know, I take that with a grain of salt. Um, as, I, as I said, there is a whole ecosystem of very diverse spiritual beings out there. And it may just be that the shadow people are one of those. Um, however, again, uh, Guiley had an experience with a shadow person as a, as a very young, uh, as a girl, basically, I think she was 12, um, doing a sleepover or, or having a sleepover at her house and, and, uh, shadow being appeared and scared the bejeebies out of her and her, um, and her, her friend that was sleeping over the, the interesting to me, um, uh, fact about uh, about shadow people that popped up in my research, though, is that uh, 
and, and I recount that a couple of that these beings seem to be associated a lot of times with uh, out-of-body experiences um, and would then uh, once the experience was complete or once the uh, individual was able to sort of drive them off would disappear in smoke um, which you know of course ties right into the main subject of the book um, you know there are a couple of those stories uh, one that I think of that um, this woman was um, recovering from surgery and so of course was on pain medications where you know so we may be talking about a spontaneous psychic event because pain medita medications, of course, uh, loosen kind of the bonds of, of our consciousness, our perception, right? Um, and may make us a little more likely to, uh, to have these sort of spontaneous occurrences. But um, she was laying on, on the couch and a, a friend of hers was taking care of her. So she was laying on this individual's couch. Um, and she woke from a dream. And again, so we may be talking about a dream occurrence too, or, you know, one of those, uh, I can't remember, it's, is it hypnagogic? That's the ones for waking up. Uh, one of those visions that happens right as we're waking up or going to sleep. I, I can't remember. There's two terms for it, and I can't remember which one is which. But in this dream, she sees a shadow, or, or in this, uh, this event, as she's coming back to consciousness, she sees this shadow person in the room, you know, and it's, it's you know, the oily black and the red eyes and the whole, whole business. Um, she claims that this being tried to, uh, or was going to try to occupy her body. Um, so there we get into a, a more uh, almost demonic uh, kind of entity. So, uh, but she she claims that uh, she very forcefully told this creature to know that you know it couldn't have her, couldn't have her body, and so forth. And and again, it vanishes in basically a puff of smoke. You know, we have an, a, another story that comes from Robert Monroe, who's very famous for his uh, his. Work, works on um, out-of-body experiences and, and teaching people, not Robert Monroe, I'm sorry, Robert Bruce, um, who's very famous for his work on teaching people how to have the out-of-body experience. Um, and uh, Bruce uh, talks about, uh, he kind of lumps all uh, entities that he doesn't perceive as as being beneficial to human beings into a category he calls negs, uh, just negative beings, right? Um, he tells a story about uh, having a situation where he's got an individual that he knows that is uh, plagued by these negative entities. Um, he has him over to the house and um, he's doing some work with him, uh, doing some kind of psychic style work with him. Uh, and uh, in his perception, he, he uses something that he calls uh, like a real-time out-of-body experience. In other words, he's, he's, he's using the vision of, of an out-of-body experience, uh, but not necessarily being out-of-body himself. But what he sees is he sees this, this shadow thing rear up, and it takes a form like a snake. It actually strikes him, um, and he claims that uh, you know he he 
came out of this vision, you know, um, he claims that he used some remedies that he had found effective for use against these negative beings. But uh, the next day he had a very clear uh, bite mark on his leg that uh, that was sore for some time afterwards. Um, so, you know, sometimes these things can have physical effects, uh, particularly, I think, on people who are sensitive to them, which Bruce seems to be. Um, it's a very uh, unusual story, and it's one of those ones that would make the scientific materialists go gaga because this guy is claiming that he can, you know, get out of his body and, and that he, he has this vision that, that uh, is associated with out-of-body travel and, and all this sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I make the case in the book, too, that I think that we need to, to pay more attention to people who make these kind of claims, you know, the shamans, the magicians, and so forth, um, because there's uh, plenty of good theory running around out there, uh, uh, you know, in, in magical and shamanic realms that people just aren't paying attention to. So uh, I used Bruce's story as an example of that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I have had a couple of times when just waking up and I have sensed that there's a tall, dark figure in my bedroom. Um, and I've just put that down to being in that state between between being asleep and waking up. But it stayed with me. There was something about it that made it feel more real than coming out of a dream. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have... You know, and everybody at that at that point in time, not everybody, but a lot of the, the, the more skeptical people would say, oh, well, you were just having a, a bit of sleep paralysis. Um, you know, that all has always struck me as being a, uh, you know, I mean, sleep paralysis is very clearly a real phenomenon. It's something that occurs. But I think there's more to it. You know, because just because you're experiencing sleep paralysis, you know, or that hypnagogic state, why are you having that specific impression? You know, I mean, with in the more extreme cases, you have the old hag syndrome where it seems like there's something sitting on your chest and and so forth. Um, you know, but there's a number of, of witnesses out there that would tell you that, you know, they saw these shadow beings or whatever during that liminal state between sleeping and waking. It's like, why is it that so many people are having the same sort of impression um, when they're in the same state, you know, unless there's something that's queuing up that impression? Um, mm. You know, whether it's a psychic event and they're actually, you know, for just a moment seeing something uh, from the other world there, or whether there is... Um, you know, whether there's an actual spiritual being that's, a, that's attracted to that particular state. You know, it may be that, uh, you know, these, these beings, you know, are wandering around looking for people who are waking up. Uh, we don't know. You know, we, again, we don't know. There's a mystery there. Um, but it's certainly the case that, uh, you know, the shadow, shadow people have a, um, a place in paranormal lore and we don't know what they are because they seem to take uh, a variety of you know you get the whole thing where people see the shadow people with hats on yeah um, yeah you, know, you get that that hat man thing you know you get uh, instances like the one where 
the young lady, the, the lady that I was talking about who felt that this thing was trying to get into her body. So you get that connection into demonic lore. Um, you know, I think you have to have more than just that to, to call something a demon. But, um, you know, and then you get these relatively harmless things that hang out in corners and seem to watch people. Um, you know, we don't know what these are. You know, and, and again, you know, my my default position on anything like that is if you encounter something like that, treat it respectfully and, uh, you know, don't offer it your body or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely not. So we're almost out of time, but I thought it'd be good to um, finish up with talking about an area that you, you hinted at earlier, which is disappearances and and teleportation. Oh Which yeah, is again is a very interesting area of Fortiana. Mm-hmm. How does how does that feature in your book? Yeah, so the uh, the entire last section of the book I just called mystery mysterious myths because there wasn't a uh, creature, there wasn't a shadow being, there wasn't a, uh, a Sasquatch or a man wolf or anything associated with these occurrences, but they were so weird that, you know, you just had to put them in the book, right? Um, And, you know, probably one of the strangest um, is this idea that uh, these these mysterious myths um, can sometimes seemingly act as a portal for uh, people to disappear and then reappear in other places. Uh, The the classic... um, and there, there was a gentleman who did a lot of research on that uh, in, in the UFO. He was a, a ufologist, basically, but he kept encountering these things in South America, uh, these stories in South America. And there's an area in, I believe it's Argentina, called Bahia Blanca. And the, the, the classic story for this one, in my mind, gentleman is a businessman. He's traveling on business. Uh, he stayed the night in a hotel in, in this in this region. Um, he goes out to his new car, um, starts his car, and encounters one of these mists uh, that materializes from nowhere. The next thing he knows, this gentleman is several hundred kilometers away in a, a place called Salta, I believe. Um, He has no idea where he is when he first arrives there. He flags down a trucker who gives him a ride into town and he goes to the local police station. And of course they think he's full of, you know, whatever. And, uh, or maybe he's had too much tequila or something. Um, They call the hotel in Bahia Blanca and the hotel, or they call the police in Bahia Blanca. The police respond to the hotel. His car is still sitting out front of the hotel running (laughs) wow and and he is literally hundreds of kilometers away um in in another part of the country um and you know of course the cops check with the front desk to make sure the guy stayed there and all this stuff and he was there he was there that morning and then he was hundreds of kilometers away in another location um so you had the the uh, idea of, of teleportation of of and, and there are several of those stories in the book. Um, there is uh, when you talk about disappearances, uh, there's a story from Japan where uh, a group of Japanese businessmen are, are traveling outside of Tokyo. They're going off to play golf, 
Um, and as they're traveling along the highway, uh, they see a, a white car in front of them. Um, and they're kind of closing on this car. They see a mysterious mist or cloud appear out of nowhere. The car drives into this mist or cloud and doesn't drive out the other side. It disappears completely. And that fog dissipates and that car is gone. And these guys were shook up enough to where they stopped their car and called the local police. Um, but there isn't anything you can do. How do you investigate a car vanishing off the highway? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. You have these kinds of things associated with these mysterious clouds and mists. You also have uh, anti-gravity effects. There's a story where a young man on a motorcycle and a Jaguar motor car pulled up a hill in, in the UK. Uh, you also have uh, situations where um, uh, the, uh, the witness claims that as they were viewing this smoky or, or misty anomaly, uh, their headlights on their car actually bent toward the anomaly, and they nearly ran into a tree as a result. Um, and and the sad postscript to that is that apparently somebody did run into a tree in that into that exact same tree in that exact same spot the day after that event occurred. Um, and so the young man actually went and, and reported this to the police because he, you know, thought that it might have bearing on the investigation. So there's so much of this stuff in the book. I, I, you know, we've just kind of, you know, scraped over the top of it. Um, the book is loaded. If, if you have an interest in paranormal events, um, you're going to find something in this book that interests you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, just talking about portals i suppose with a portal you, you could say well perhaps there's a a temperature difference between one side of the portal and the other and that that naturally would create clouds you know the these kind of phenomena you, the the mist perhaps in a in a small way makes a bit more of a of a sense in terms of a natural phenomenon like it's it's the, it's manifesting because of, of something physically present yeah, entirely possible because we know that uh, in, in the, the one occasion that we know of where somebody stepped through one of these mists and then made it back, um, this miner uh, up in the Northwest Territories here in Canada actually stepped through one of these things, found himself in a completely different place, uh, completely different temperature and, uh, you know, grassland and so forth where he was coming out of a rocky gully. Um, so, you know, it's possible that, you know, the mist may form as a result of contact with the air, you know, in, in that other world um, and the air here. Uh, or, you know, if we give it a more intelligent explanation, the portal may produce the mist to obscure itself, you know, because it certainly seems that uh, some of these smokes and clouds and things that we encountered in, in, in the book uh, seem to pick people. <laughs> Um, and uh, for for an experience, so you know this may be their way of, of obscuring the portal, so that um, you know you, you don't know quite what you're getting into. Uh, again, we don't know; it's all a mystery, and that's what makes it fun. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I was going to say it's it's fortunate that people, when they experience these things, they they materialize 
on the ground. They don't materialize in midair or or buried in the earth. But I suppose we just never find those people, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. There, there is one story in the book about uh, a cloud or a cloud, a mysterious cloud that materializes while uh, pilots are are in transit across the Atlantic, and uh, it throws off their instrumentation. And interestingly enough, it was in the in the area that some people call a Bermuda Triangle. So, right, yeah, yeah. Well, Travis, this has been an excellent conversation. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. If people want to find out more about you and how to get hold of your book, how best do they do that? So the, the book is called Mysteries in the Mist, uh, Mist, Fog, and Clouds in the Paranormal. Um, it's available on Amazon, both as a paperback and a, a, an ebook. Um, and if you would want to interact with me personally, I'm on Facebook uh, as Will Watson. I'm on uh, Twitter at WTWatson2. Um, and on uh, Instagram, which is kind of my weird one, it's uh, Curanir, C-U-R-U-N-I-R 60. Um, so uh, I'm always happy to hear from people. I do occasionally get people who dial me up after hearing one of these interviews and say, hey, I had an experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm always happy to hear those stories. Um, but um, also, also, you know, happy to interact with people if they have questions or, you know, uh, other things. So um, do get in touch with me if you if you wish. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Uh, have a great day. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Travis. The subject of his latest book is an unusual one, but is full of intriguing information that could definitely lead you down a few Fortean rabbit holes if you get hold of a copy. As always, please consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.